Patients with neuromuscular diseases are living into adulthood. What implications are there for prevention of heart disease in these patients? You're listening to ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing current therapies for new uses. And our guest is Elizabeth McNally, MD, PhD, Professor of Medicine and Human Genetics and Director of both the Institute for Cardiovascular Research and the Cardiovascular Genetics Clinic at the University of Chicago Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. McNally is a cardiologist and internationally known expert on the genetics of heart disease and joins us to talk about human cardiomyopathies and muscular dystrophies. Dr. McNally, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. So what are inherited heart diseases and how do they impact with neuromuscular diseases? So many of the patients that I actually consult on are those that have forms of muscle disease, the most common of these being muscular dystrophies. Duchenne muscular dystrophy, Becker muscular dystrophy, and myotonic dystrophy, as well as the limb girdle muscular dystrophies, are patients that come to clinic. In part, they do so because they are at increased risk of developing heart disease. The primary heart disease that these patients can get usually involves cardiomyopathy or heart failure and also risk of irregular heart rhythms that can range from atrial fibrillation to heart block as well as ventricular arrhythmias as well. What's the prevalence of these muscular dystrophies in the general population? Duchenne muscular dystrophy is the most common X-linked inherited disorder and is thought to be present in about 1 in 3,500 male births. A certain percentage of the time, about a third of the time, those are actually brand new mutations. And so there may be no other family history of it. About two-thirds of the time, there actually is a family history of similar disease. Duchenne dystrophy is a is a difficult diagnosis. It most often affects boys, usually getting diagnosed in their first five years of life and often losing the ability to walk by the time they're 10 or 12 years old. As they get into their teenage years, they very commonly develop typical cardiomyopathy that is dilated in nature with reduced function on the heart, as well as accompanying arrhythmias. And it's important to realize that this cardiomyopathy can be treated just like any other cardiomyopathy with improvement of of functioning, at least better breathing and, and more comfort. There is also adequate treatment available for preventing arrhythmias, and it's important that patients realize that they have these options to be treated in this way. You said that about two-thirds of these are genetically transmitted from family member to family member. How are they transmitted, and what about the other kinds of muscular dystrophies? So Duchenne or Becker muscular dystrophy are both associated with mutations in the dystrophin gene, and that's a gene that exists on the X chromosome. So women having two X chromosomes usually don't show signs of the disease because having one X chromosome is sufficient to prevent against most of the symptoms. That said, when they get later in life, they should be observed for developing some cardiomyopathy, but it seems to be pretty low percentage. But what it means is that they are at 50% risk of passing this on to their sons, and so they have a 50% chance that their sons will have this disease. It's important that if there is any family history of disease, that genetic counseling and testing be offered because there are, this is a very diagnosable disease, 
and depending on options made, there are many different ways of, of dealing with this in terms of pregnancy counseling and things along those lines. But if a child is diagnosed at a young age, it's important that they be hooked into a medical center that is aware of what treatments are currently available for disease. Children should be started on steroids at an early age, and treatment for cardiomyopathy should be offered from a young age as well. What do the steroids do, and why is that important? It remained a hot debate for many years in this country whether steroids, and these are typical glucocorticoid steroids such as prednisone that are being used to treat this disorder. And for many years in this country, people were resistant about using these drugs because they can be associated with a lot of side effects such as weight gain and mood swings, as well as long-term things like osteoporosis. At the same time, they had been used a lot in Europe and in particular also a drug known as deflazacort. And over time, a sufficient number of trials came out that basically supported the use of steroids. And so it's very common that they are used to treat the disease. It's not entirely clear the mechanism by which they work, but usually boys are kept on this drug provided that they don't have terrible side effects until the point at which they use ambulation. I would say anecdotally, right now in Europe, they actually are leaving some of the boys on the drugs even after the loss of ambulation with the idea that it may be preserving respiratory and cardiac function a bit longer as well. And how did you get interested in researching these two combined fields, the cardiomyopathies and the neuromuscular diseases? Well, I've been long interested in what are the genes that make muscles and heart muscle work or not work. And in part, skeletal muscle and cardiac muscle have a very similar structure. They're both full of myosin and actin. Skeletal muscle is different in that they are multinucleate cells, whereas in the cardiac muscle that's not the case. But the overall similarities between the two types of muscle cells are really quite similar. And so not surprisingly, many of the gene defects that cause skeletal muscle to be abnormal also cause cardiac muscle to be abnormal, and sometimes vice versa as well, provided that the genes expressed in both tissues. And so to me, it seems very natural to think about both. Those have been the things we've been interested in in the laboratory, and now that we see patients that have the same problems, it's, again, very natural to me since I've been thinking about both of these sets of tissues for a long time. And so you see both these kinds of patients in the clinical setting and you do research on both kinds of diseases? Exactly, exactly. And it's very important now that we're moving into having more pharmacologic therapies to to potentially treat these disorders, that we actually think about what the effect is on the heart as well as the skeletal muscle in doing so. Do you have useful models of human cardiomyopathy and muscular dystrophies, and how did you establish those? We do. Our favorite model to work in is is the mouse, as many investigators over the last decade or so have gravitated towards this model. It turns out the mouse is actually a, a pretty good model for working on heart and muscle disease, in part because the mouse heart looks a lot like the human heart. It's got four chambers, and it's got a similar vascular structure and a similar valvular structure. It's got some key differences, namely it's very small, much less than the size of a dime, and also the challenge that it eats at 600 times a minute. So that's a bit of a challenge in being able to work with it. At the same time, mice have the advantage in that they are genetically tractable. We can insert genes in at will, and we can take genes out. I make it sound easy. It, of course, takes years to develop these models, but once you have them, they're very useful. So in my laboratory, we've developed several different models that develop skeletal muscle disease and cardiac muscle disease very akin to what happens in the human patients that have the exact same mutations. We've done that by knocking genes out for the most part, but we've also done it in some cases by inserting some genes in. 
If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I'm speaking with Dr. Elizabeth McNally, a University of Chicago cardiologist and internationally renowned expert on the genetics of heart disease who joins us to talk about human cardiomyopathies and muscular dystrophies. So what are your interests in the vascular spasms and their role in cardiomyopathy progression? So this is an area we got into uh, a few years back. It was demonstrated that with the loss of certain of these dystrophin-associated proteins, proteins that we've been interested in for a long time, that this may actually lead to spasm. I will say there are a collection of proteins that are present at the plasma membrane of cardiomyocytes as well as skeletal and smooth muscle cells as well. And it's thought that these proteins, dystrophin and its associated proteins, play a role in stabilizing the surface of cells. When you think about a heart muscle cell or a skeletal muscle cell, it's faced with a lot of force as each time that cell undergoes contraction and shortening and force production. And so an attachment to the surrounding environment, the extracellular matrix, which is what the dystrophin-associated protein complex does, is particularly important. In the absence of this collection of proteins, which is what happens from the mutational situation, the cells actually rip themselves apart in some cases. So it was suggested some years ago that in smooth muscle that this was actually leading to spasm. And by causing spasm, this was creating what really were what we refer to as micro-infarcts within the tissue, small little areas of dead tissue. What we did with our work is we actually discovered that it isn't a primary defect in the smooth muscle itself. It's actually that the vessels spasm in response to the damage in the environmental cells around it. And so that's an important thing to realize because that's a treatable phenomenon. So there are different drugs that you can give that prevent that spasm. And when we gave them to our mouse models with disease, we actually slowed progression of disease. So the in those mice models, the cells were still being damaged, but the response of the vessel was not to go into spasm because of the drugs? Correct. We're able to reduce that with calcium channel blockers. What can we do now to think about reducing the damage to those cells? Well, that's a key area and one that we have a lot of interest in, we and other people in the field, I should say, as well. We're trying to understand the pathways that mediate the degeneration of the plasma membrane, and we're trying to understand the pathways that also potentially repair it or enhance the repair, because if you can slow down the degeneration or you can enhance the repair, those are two important therapeutic avenues to be thinking about. So how does the cell biology and genetics of plasma membrane fusion and nuclear membrane structure and function have a role in cardiomyopathy and in muscular dystrophies? So in the muscular dystrophies, there have been, again, about 40 or so different genes that have been identified that lead to disease. And there's a crossover in that there's a subset of those that also lead to heart disease as well. One of the fascinating genes that leads to muscular dystrophy, what's known as a recessive form of dystrophy, is called dysferlin. And it seems to be a protein that's poised to actually mediate repair. We've understood its function best in skeletal muscle, which is if you damage a skeletal muscle, the surface of the cells, the dysferlin actually participates in the repair process, resealing the tears that actually occur within the plasma membrane itself. And it turns out dysferlin is actually a member, there are five other ferlin genes like it in the database. And so we've been actively picking off those one by one and working on them and trying to understand if they too participate in this process. And it turns out generally we suspect that they are involved in the fusion of either vesicles to the surface of cells 
which is also the fusion of two different membranes, or in the resealing, which also is a vesicle-mediated repair. And so we're very interested to understand this process better because it turns out that this could be a, a very important therapeutic avenue. What are you currently doing for patients with neuromuscular diseases who have accompanying cardiac disease? Our approach is to treat their cardiac disease in the same way we would treat cardiac disease for patients who don't have muscle disease. The mainstay of treating cardiac disease is pharmacologic. We use drugs such as ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers, and we use beta blockers. And then there are some other drugs that we use as well, such as spironolactone and diuretics as needed and potentially digoxin. Breakthroughs are happening every day to help manage the adult diseases of patients who used to die of neuromuscular diseases in adolescence. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Elizabeth McNally, Professor of Medicine and Human Genetics and Director of both the Institute for Cardiovascular Research and the Cardiovascular Genetics Clinic at the University of Chicago Medical Center here in Chicago, Illinois, for joining us to talk about human cardiomyopathies and muscular dystrophies. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that repurposes existing treatments for new uses. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, where you can find our new on-demand and podcast features that will allow you access to our entire program library. And thank you for listening.